Thank you, everyone, who took the time to take the survey. It helped me get a lot of understanding about the audience that I'm serving. It's going to be very useful for upcoming advertising inquiries and just decision-making on how to get you all involved. And one of the ways uh, that came to me as far as helping with you all getting involved is to find, use, volunteer at, and donate to these nonprofit organizations that are providing sexual health resources. This episode is the first of the rebranding episodes. Um, I didn't realize it until hindsight, but a lot of you expressed an unwillingness to share the podcast, and I understand completely as it's stigma-related, and I openly say this is a podcast where I interview people with STDs. So if someone finds out you listen to this podcast, they may find you out and discover that you have herpes or HIV or you're living with something else and you just aren't ready for them to know that yet. And I understand. So I want to make this easier to have a conversation about. I want this to be easier to share. So we're rebranding this as rather than something positive for STD positive people, it is now something positive for sex positive people. And I'm not going to include the word sex because it's just going to stay something positive for positive people. But I want people to understand in their in their mind that this is about sex positivity. So we're branching out into more sex positive resources um, instead of just I'm interviewing people with STDs. Here's how they made it through. There's still going to be that, but it'll be more subtle or in the, uh, it'll depend on who the guest is. So, um, I want you guys to feel safe listening to this. I want you to feel safe talking about it and engaging with me. So, um, if you still haven't followed me on Instagram, that's where I'm most active at H on my chest. And you can follow the hashtags SPFPP which is just the acronym for something positive for positive people. Or you can follow the hashtag something positive for positive people itself to stay up to date on everything coming up. So um, I didn't get to tell you about my experience with getting tested at this organization that you're going to hear from. It's called St. Louis Effort for AIDS. I found them with a Google search of free STD testing. I see that they have uh, different flyers all around my city. I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and I finally was able to get in contact with someone, uh, the VP of operations there. And we talked about HIV. We talked about all of the services that they provide, and you'll hear that in the episode. But I didn't get to touch on my experience with getting tested. I felt so safe. I was in a sex-positive, shame-free environment, and I was just met with such compassion and empathy and understanding. I was asked if I was a sex worker, if I engaged in sexual activity with sex workers. Um, I was asked if, and this wasn't for the sake of judgment, it was to assess uh, whether or not I was a candidate for PrEP or if I would consider that as an option as well. If I had sex with transgendered people, I was asked what I identified as. Um, And the questions were very, it was in a way that was, uh, again, I just felt safe, cared for. And I can imagine that someone who may be part of, uh, may identify as something not cisgendered male, for example, um, having this feeling of being seen and I know how important that is to some people. So I encourage you to find these organizations, patronize them, use them, donate to them, volunteer at them and use these services. My STD test was free in the past. I've been tested at a physician and I had to come out of pocket roughly two, $300. So these services are available. You can get free condoms, free testing in some cases, free treatment, but um, I'm leaning more towards just saying affordable treatment and the organization is great 
great. I'm sure you can find one in your area. Just Google free STD testing in your area and you'll be able to find something. Um, I want to also thank Dating Positives for their continued support of the Something Positive for Positive People podcast. I've, I wouldn't have been able to do this on a weekly basis without their support. So um, I'm very thankful for them. And if you haven't already, go and check them out, as well as the blog, Waxo, W-A-X-O-H, as I continue to talk about on every podcast episode. I contribute some content there, um, more descriptive, just takeaways from what I've learned from my personal experience and um, adding to what we already talk about on the podcast in a little bit more detail there as well. And um, one of the things that people talked about in the survey was wanting more uh, queer representation on the podcast. So I'm working on that, but you can go to the Waxo blog in order to see. uh, There's an article recently posted about why a queer man says he has to have a, he would prefer to have a gay male doctor. So that's the kind of content that you can see there. It's very sex positive as well and informative. So check them out. I hope you enjoy this episode of something. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this episode of something positive for positive people, as I do plan to do more of these to bring these nonprofit organizations to a place where everybody can find them easier because these promotion of these sex positive, shame-free environments is how we're going to reduce and get rid of the stigma behind STIs. When everybody's aware of these services and um, they're flooded with sex positivity, it's easier to receive a diagnosis in a place that's more empathetic, that tells you this is how we're going to move forward, there's nothing to be ashamed of, and where you can be seen and experienced. So, Check it out and just consider looking for these organizations and patronizing them. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brang. If you are new to the podcast, please scroll through the titles and check out anything that may resonate with you. I've done as best I can to be as descriptive in the titles as I could about what the actual podcast episode's about. And if that's not enough for you, check out the descriptions. With STD Awareness Month being in April, I am doing my best to collaborate and connect with a lot of organizations who provide sexual health resources. And this time last year, there were a bunch of organizations locally here in St. Louis, Missouri, I was able to collaborate with. There was an organization at St. Louis University. There was the St. Louis County Department of Public Health. And here we are on the one-year anniversary of me doing all that outreach. I'm sitting here right now across from Tanya Brown, who's the VP of Operations at St. Louis Effort for AIDS. Now, I'm sorry, I messed up your name. It's Tanya Brown, MSW, (laughs) Master's in Social Work. Well, first, can you tell me what HIV is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so HIV stands for a human immunodeficiency virus. So it's a virus that actually attacks the immune system. Our immune system is the mechanism in our body that is used to fight off infection. And so we're exposed to bacteria and viruses all the time, and our healthy immune system works to fight those things um, and creates specific fighters for specific viruses. And a lot of those things that we're exposed to on a daily basis don't end up making us sick because we have a healthy immune system. For people that are immune compromised, and this isn't exclusive to HIV, um, but for people who are immune compromised, they don't have the ability to fight off those infections, and then those infections make them sick. So, for instance, um, if I am uh, HIV positive, I'm more likely to... um, become infected with pneumonia, as an example, 
because a lot of us are exposed to the bacteria that causes pneumonia all the time, but we don't become sick. Someone who doesn't have a healthy immune system um, because they have a lot of HIV circulating in their system and their immune system is now fighting that instead of putting their attention on fighting the things that we're exposed to every day, then that creates opportunities for you to become sick. And then the conditions that cause people to become sick more often when they're HIV positive are actually called opportunistic infections. And once you get diagnosed with an opportunistic infection, then you're considered to have AIDS. AIDS doesn't exactly mean what it used to mean. Um, You know, back in the 80s and 90s, you know, when someone had AIDS, that usually meant, okay, I've crossed this threshold and I'm not coming back. I'm just going to keep getting sicker. That's not what it means anymore. Um, when I was working at WashU in particular, we got a lot of referrals um, of people who were diagnosed for the first time in the hospital. So they're admitted they're quite sick. They've got an opportunistic infection, pneumonia, or something else. They're really sick. We start them on meds, these potent one-day, uh, one-pill-a-day meds, and they not only are not sick anymore, but they've gotten undetectable. So the same thing that we can do with a newly diagnosed HIV positive person, if we can get them into the system quickly before they've even gotten sick ever, we can achieve now with someone who's gotten very sick. You know, again, not nothing's 100%, but these kinds of things didn't happen 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when people got very sick, that started a decline that they didn't come back from. That's not how it has to happen anymore. Yeah, you have 20 years plus of experience working with HIV. And before we got started, you mentioned what some of those experiences were. Can you share with me where you've been? Sure. So I started working in HIV when I was in graduate school. And my first practicum was uh, doing HIV and STD screening for free at Family Care Health Center. And we did a support group, uh, psychoeducational prevention group for teens called Teen Talk. Then I helped facilitate a support group for people living with HIV. This is back in the 90s, so this is late 90s, uh, called Steps to Living. And I'm thrilled that a lot of the people that were in that support group I still see today. Um, Since then, uh, the major part of my experience is that I spent 17 years at Washington University Infectious Diseases Clinic running their HIV program. During those 17 years, we expanded our service base quite a bit. nearly doubled the number of patients that we served. When I left there, we were serving nearly 2,000 patients in our clinic. And we offered a, what we called one-stop shop model of care, where there was case management, mental health services, transportation support groups, um, on-site lab available there for people so that we could consolidate as many services as possible. And so when the opportunity came up to join um, St. Louis Effort for AIDS because of their merger with AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin and their development of an HIV medical home model, which kind of builds on everything I had done at Washington University and then expands it even further, I was just excited about the opportunity. Um, Now, you said that you connected with people from the 90s like you're still able to see them today Mm -hmm. which shows just how far we've come because at that point in time HIV was a death sentence right yeah that's right so when I was working in HIV in the latter part of the 90s and even the early 2000s there were people who were very sick Um, you know the best drugs the kind of second wave of drugs um, that people referred to as the cocktail back then came out um, in the mid 90s but by then 
some people's health was so damaged already that they weren't really able to benefit. And so people were still dying quite a bit in the, in the late 90s. I remember always saving the, the funeral programs from the funerals that I went to. And that was sometimes multiple times a month um, I was going to funerals. I haven't been to a funeral in quite some time. Uh, the, the latest drugs, in comparison, are a lot easier to take. They're less toxic on the system, and they're way more effective because the combination drugs that were happening in the 90s where you would take a handful of drugs to get to that combination are now available in a single med. Yeah, so, and that's one pill a day, right? One pill a day. Is mm-hmm. this PrEP, or is it something else? So similar. Okay. So for people living with HIV, most of them are on a one-pill-a-day regimen that includes a combination of tactics to fight HIV in the system. For people who are negative but at high risk and want to prevent infection, then they can get on PrEP, and that is also a one-pill-a-day regimen. Okay. Who would be considered high risk for HIV? Mm-hmm. So, you know, technically anyone's at risk for HIV, right? It's, it's based on the behaviors that you engage in, and most of us have sex. So if we're having sex and we're not protecting ourselves and the person uh, that we're having sex with um, doesn't know their status, we're at risk. Yeah. Given that as a baseline, um, people that we would consider high risk are people that have multiple partners, people who are often having unprotected sex. Um, uh, Men who have sex with men are at higher risk generally because there is a high prevalence of HIV in that community. So if you're a man who has sex with other men, you are more likely to encounter someone who's already HIV positive, and by that nature, then you're at higher risk, not because necessarily your personal behavior is high-risk behavior, but you're in a community that has a a high prevalence of HIV. Got it. Now, you mentioned, too, that you've served a lot of people. Now, part of me thinks that's a good thing. Part of me thinks that's a bad thing. The part of me that says that's a bad thing is because, oh, man, so many people have HIV. But the good part is, oh, yay, so many people know they have HIV and they're getting treatment. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that is really the new version of how we're doing HIV care now, making sure that people get their diagnosis as soon as possible, get into care as, as soon as possible, get on meds as soon as possible, because if we can get them to an undetectable viral load, which with the uh, powerful meds that we have available right now can happen within weeks, we can get them to an undetectable viral load. They're no longer transmittable. And when you're no longer transmittable, that means even if you're not protecting yourself, which of course we want people to do, because other STDs are still in the mix, whole purpose of your podcast. Um, but even if you don't, if you slip up or if, if you're not protecting yourselves <clears throat> in a specific sexual encounter, you actually can't tra- transmit HIV to your partner. Yeah. And um, that is a tool that we've never had in the HIV uh, community, that mm-hmm. if a person is living with HIV and they slip up, they're still not exposing someone. That yeah. is that is very helpful. And then not only that, of course, if you're at an undetectable level as an HIV-positive person, your immune system is able to better handle the infections that you encounter every day, that all of us encounter every day, um, because um, the virus isn't attacking you the same way it would if you had a detectable virus. Yeah. We want to get people treatment as soon as possible, so the only way to do so is to get tested. Yes. So get tested. How often do you recommend HIV testing for someone who may engage in sex with multiple partners? Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely at least quarterly, so every three months. 
Um, depending on the volume of number of partners that you're encountering, it, it, it may be best to have that more frequently. And, you know, that's one of the benefits of coming for HIV testing in a location like ours. And we're not the only place, but at a location like ours, what you're going to get is an individualized counseling session where the person who conducts your HIV and STD screening is going to talk with you about your specific risks. And then based on that, make some recommendations. You know, you'll get your test that day, but based on all of the, the risks that you've described, they'll recommend how frequently you should get tested. Okay. Now, how long does it take for HIV between the time of exposure to the time that symptoms become prevalent? That, that's years, generally. So um, what can happen, but this doesn't happen to everybody, is that if you, once you're exposed, like say I had sex today with someone who is HIV positive. It's possible. And not on their meds. And not on their meds. And we didn't use a condom, okay? So say that happened today. It's possible that within the next one to two weeks, I might encounter a flu-like illness. Except, guess what? Flu-like illnesses happen all the time. People catch colds. They don't know that that's what is happening because usually that flu-like illness is not going to take you down. You'll, uh, you know, you'll feel like you're kind of sick, um, you know, but it'll pass just like it would pass for a, a healthy person. And then um, you may not have any other symptoms for years. Oh, so if you're pretty much having a healthy lifestyle already, mm-hmm. you find yourself uh, presented with early symptoms of HIV, mm-hmm. they pass, and you just are healthy and don't mm-hmm. have any issues with your immune system. Mm-hmm. You can go years without That's right. Like even guessing or possibly having any symptoms that would make you think, hmm, I should probably go get checked or tested and treated for HIV. 100%. You know, some people may get a rash. Um, Most people don't. There's no, like, you're positive this day, then three weeks later this happens to you, then a year later this happens to you. That is not consistent and it's not predictable. So the important thing, as you mentioned, is to get tested and to get tested as frequently as it needs to happen based on your behavior. Okay, so for someone who is in a monogamous relationship and thinks that I never have to go and get tested because me and my partner are loyal to each other and we're only having sex with each other, is there a standard for how often that couple may need to be tested for HIV? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I actually faced this question in my own relationship recently. Um, So what I would say is if you're in a monogamous relationship, you need your baseline. And so you both should get tested. And then you should think about getting retested based on the last time you had sex outside of the relationship. Then if you're really in a monogamous relationship, you shouldn't need to get tested again. If, if, if I've been in a monogamous relationship for two months with somebody, we both get tested. Maybe the last time I had sex with somebody was a month before that, so I'm still in the window period. So I get tested another three months later, and I'm still negative. And he or she is still negative and we're still together and not having sex with anybody else, then we're not encountering HIV, and we don't need to get tested anymore. But the minute someone else, someone steps outside of the relationship and has sex with someone else, then risk enters. Um, and then how much risk enters depends on how you had sex, right? If you protected yourself, probably not much risk at all. Mm-hmm. If you haven't, you don't know until yeah. you get tested. Yeah. And then there are multiple ways HIV is transmitted. Can you walk me through some of those? Because yeah. it's just not... You don't have to think about it like just someone had sex with someone else. Now I need to get checked for HIV because it's passed through. So it's passed through three body fluids. It's semen or vaginal fluid, so the fluid that gets exchanged when you have sex. 
It's blood and it's breast milk. So, breast milk? Breast milk. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'll let you go. I'm sorry. Yeah, so um, just real quickly on that. So women who are HIV positive are not recommended to breastfeed their babies. Even if they're on uh, medication? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that may be changing now that the science says that if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable. But the last information I had was that you still are not recommended to breastfeed your baby um, if you're positive. Then with blood, generally the way that uh, a blood exposure would happen would be by sharing needles. So you share needles um, injecting steroids or injecting opiates um, or even diabetes drugs. You know, if you're injecting something and you're using a needle that someone else used, there's a possibility that their blood is in that needle and then you're going to get their exposure. So it's not like, okay, I cut myself picking up a pencil off the floor on the corner of this desk and Mm -hmm. then I go outside and for whatever reason, punch somebody in the face mm-hmm. and their tooth scratches my knuckle more mm-hmm. and I scratch their gum and mm-hmm. blood exchanges on my knuckle mm-hmm. and in their jaw. Is there a possibility of HIV being passed on there? Mm-hmm. So, in the unique situation you described... <laughs> <laughs> Very unique. Perhaps. Okay. So, what needs to happen with a blood exposure is not only that the person who's positive has... Um, blood come outside of their body some kind of way, but also that there would be an entry point in the other person. So if my blood just drips on someone else's skin and I'm HIV positive, that's probably not really an exposure. But if I had a tiny cut on my hand or, you know, their blood jumps in my mouth or, you know, if there were an entry point, then that's where you would need to be concerned. And so what we do um, do in the HIV community, especially in the medical profession, is that if if you have an exposure to someone's blood, then they do, instead of PrEP, which is a preventative measure, they do what's called PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So kind of the same mechanism um, that I've had an, an exposure just now. And so if I can start on meds in the next one or two days, uh, the likelihood of me actually, even though I was exposed, the, actual, uh, the likelihood of me having an active infection is very low. Okay. The way that you just described it, breast milk, uh, blood, and body fluids that are normally exchanged through sexual contact are the means of exposure to HIV. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, um, if I'm putting it in simple terms, what the medication for HIV does is essentially make it to where your immune system is able to combat the virus just like it would anything else, or is it boosting your immune system overall, or is it just allowing your immune system to treat HIV just like it is anything else and like combat everything yeah thanks for the follow-up question so HIV um is a smart one (laughs) the 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 deal with HIV is it um inserts itself into cells and then changes the RNA in those cells so they become HIV factories themselves so it's not just the amount of HIV that you get exposed to when you either exchange body fluids uh semen, vaginal fluids, or blood with someone, it is that then once HIV is introduced into your system, it invades these cells and creates more HIV. And so that's why I think like a viral load is relevant, because it's not just how much virus virus you're initially infected with, it's how much virus continues to grow in your system. And for someone who's been exposed and then doesn't get any treatment that helps them fight HIV, the amount of HIV in their body is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Viral loads can be in the millions. Undetectable is less than 20. So um, 
what the new meds do, which a combination of meds used to do, is that they have all of these tactics in one pill where they're preventing the HIV from attaching to the protein on the outside of the cell that allows them to enter. They're preventing a cell that's already had HIV entering from exposing, from releasing more HIV outside of the cell. They're killing HIV that's floating around in the system. So they're attacking it from all different ways. That's why we can get that viral load down so fast and keep it down. Um, now, I'm not a scientist or a physician, so that's the way I understand it, but that's pretty much what's happening. We're attacking all of the ways that HIV um, creates mechanisms to reproduce itself. Okay. So there is a presence of the virus in you. It's just once you're undetectable, it's not enough for you to transmit the virus. Yes. Okay. And now there are medications that can be taken for someone who's at high risk, PrEP. How exactly does PrEP work? Mm -hmm. So PrEP um, prevents the exposure from becoming a transmission. So um, before HIV is able to attach itself to those proteins on the outside of these cells and create factories um, inside your body to create more and more HIV, um, it interrupts that process. And so... So it cock blocks HIV. <laughs> I love that. Yes. It's, it's the cock block of all cock blocks. All right. Yeah. There was one more question I wanted to ask you. Um, while I think about that, it may even come up when you describe what services you all provide here, specifically in St. Louis, at this location. Great question. And it's, a, it's an evolving question, which is really exciting mm -hmm. for us. Yes. So St. Louis Effort for AIDS has been in existence for over 30 years. It was... Um, one of the, if not the original, um, AIDS, what we used to call AIDS service organizations or ASOs in the St. Louis region. And what is thrilling to me to be a part of this as a social worker is that, you know, for this thing in particular, for this HIV service system that has developed over the last several decades, not only in St. Louis but across the country, it was developed by advocates. People who saw their friends and loved ones and family members uh, being decimated by HIV, AIDS, and dying. And they felt like something has to be done. And the politics of the time were not responding either enough or fast enough. And so they created organizations. And there are a number of organizations, including St. Louis Effort for AIDS in the St. Louis region, that started that way. So fast forward to, let's say, last year. <laughs> so as of uh, 2018, the services that St. Louis Separate for AIDS was delivering included um, case management, what's also sometimes called medical case management, for people living with HIV. We have 20 case managers right now. And um, we carry caseloads of people living with HIV, and um, our main purpose is to help them get into and stay into medical care so we can get them undetectable and they don't have to have other health problems. However... Um, a lot of people living with HIV have other challenges. Um, not having access to regular health care is a common thing. And um, living in poverty is a common thing. And these things converge. And so we've got a lot of people on our caseloads who have ongoing housing challenges, who have untreated mental health issues, who are struggling with substance use, all kinds of things that can actually interfere with and getting in medical care and staying in medical care. So our case managers have a laser focus on um, helping them get to the best health outcomes possible, 
but to do that means we have to help them address all their barriers to care. And so we'll do referrals to housing programs. Um, we offer transportation to um, their doctor's appointments and other things that they need. There are providers um, locally who offer food. Um, we've got access to mental health services, dental, uh, dental care, all of those things in the region. Um, so we've got case management. We have an insurance assistance program called the Access Project. Um, so during the open enrollment period of the year, um, we can help provide one-on-one -on -one assistance to people so that they can get enrolled in the Affordable Care Act, um, which gives them access to insurance for the whole year, which is really helpful. Um, and then um, we have our prevention program, which offers uh, both walk-in and scheduled HIV and STD screening on site here. Um, soon we'll be expanding into treatment. Um, and that's a free service. Um, <clears throat> and so that's kind of where we were in, in 2018. Uh, starting in 2019, <laughs> uh, so in 2019, because of the merger that we went through last fall with AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin and um, the development of the HIV medical model here in St. Louis, we are expanding into an integrated care model, which I'm familiar with from WashU, but like I said, it's going to be um, even more enhanced. So since January, we've moved into a new building, but we've also added a clinic. So we've got on-site access to HIV medical care here, which is where we'll also build in our STD treatment options. Um, we have a pharmacy on-site, which we didn't have before. I noticed that when I walked in. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. And then um, throughout the course of the next, I'd say, year to year and a half from now, we'll be adding in dental services. We'll be adding in a food pantry. And we'll be adding in behavioral health and hopefully even legal services. Oh, wow. All of that in this building. All of that on the first floor. Yeah. So someone can come in to, for the doctor. The doctor notices they've got um, some dental issues. We can walk them right over to the dental clinic. Um, maybe they don't have enough food in the house. They walk out with food from our food pantry. Or whatever version of needs that they've got, hopefully we can address by having all of these services available in the same location. And not only that, that the providers of those services can talk to each other on behalf of the client to provide the most streamlined, coordinated version of care that that person needs. That is amazing. And these are all free services, correct? So, yes and no. Okay. So, you know, obviously there has to be a way to sustain all of these services. Um, so people who have insurance, we're going to be billing their insurance. So it isn't free as if... If you have a way to pay for them, you shouldn't pay at all. You know, obviously we want people who have a way to pay to pay for those services because it's the payment that you're providing that's helping to pay for someone who doesn't have those resources. Um, we do have grants and partnerships that are helping to provide access to free HIV testing, free STD testing, um, and we're hoping to have um, free STD treatment. Um, but again, if you've got insurance, we're going to hope that you'll let us know that and we'll be able to bill your insurance because that helps uh, reduce the cost that we can use to apply for other folks who don't have those resources. Case management is always a free service because it's funded by grants. Um, our dental services will be similar to medical. If you've got insurance, we're going to bill your insurance. If you don't, we'll have a way to treat you anyway. Um, legal services will probably be a free service, and mental health will operate the same as medical or dental. Uh, often people don't have decent mental health benefits, so there'll probably be a higher proportion of folks that might have insurance but won't have mental health benefits um, so that uh, we'll use whatever they have, but if they don't have anything, we'll try to make sure that they get access to our services. Perfect. 
And if I'm someone who wants to get involved or if I want to help with what the organization's doing or contribute to just making this continue to expand and help more people, how can I get involved? Great question. So there are a few events that we have every year that help to fundraise hundreds of thousands of dollars for us um, to deliver the services that we offer. Uh, The next one coming up is called Dine Out for Life. And it's a national event, but when it happens in St. Louis, all the money that's raised comes to St. Louis Separate for AIDS. It's on May 2nd. And there's a list on our website, stlefa.org, that includes all of the restaurants where you can go, whether it's for breakfast or lunch or dinner, and then what proportion of the proceeds from that day will be donated to St. Louis Separate for AIDS. So, for instance, um, you might find a place that you could go to for lunch that day um, that is going to offer up to 50% of your check as a donation to EFA. Um, I'll be hosting, I'm planning to host, for instance, at Rise Coffee on the morning of May 2nd, and they'll be offering a a proportion of their proceeds from breakfast and lunch that day. There's a whole list, um, and I've participated for the last several years in that event as just a diner. I would just always make sure I went out to some place that was on that list that day. And this year I'll be able to host as part of EFA at one of the locations. So we'd love to see people come out for that. In addition, we have a couple of other fundraisers that happen later in the year that support our PAWS program, which I neglected to mention earlier. Pets are wonderful support, P-A-W-S. Um, So we have both a Thirst for Life and a Art of Paws fundraiser later in the year, um, usually around July, August, that support that program. That program helps make sure that people who are living with HIV, um, who have pets in the home, are able to keep their pets. And again, like I mentioned before, uh, a lot of people with HIV are struggling to keep themselves housed, to keep enough food in the house and so might otherwise have to give up their pets, and so we can help cover the cost of their pet food and or their veterinary bills to keep their pets in the house. And then we'll take a donation anytime you want to give it to us. (laughs) And so that's also available on our website, stlefa.org. There are some opportunities to volunteer for these events, and if someone has questions about volunteering for one of our fundraising events, they should contact James Lesh and his uh, a link to his contact information should be on our website. He's our director of development. Perfect. Is there anything else that uh, you want to mention that I may not have gotten to or that we didn't get out? Yeah, so one thing I want to make sure folks know, especially since I just um, was throwing out our, our website, is that we are going to go through a rebranding process in the next couple of months. So I mentioned that St. Louis Separate for AIDS merged with an organization called AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin, or ARCW, uh, last year. And that organization, ARCW, had already merged with another HIV organization in Denver called Rocky Mountain Cares. And so since ARCW is taking a statewide, not statewide, a national approach to spreading um, accessibility to an HIV medical model, this model I described with all these integrated services, they're trying to spread that model across the country. It's becoming really clear that we can't have an organization that has multiple named organizations, especially when they're specific to a site um, or a city or a state. So um, rolling out probably in May, we'll have another a new, a new unified name for our entire organization um, and new brand and logo and all of that stuff. So um, stay tuned for that. 
I'm sure that our sclefa.org um, website will feed into whatever the new website is. So um, just remember that one and you'll still find us, but uh, look for a new name, new logo for, for all the services we provide. Thank you so much. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People with the St. Louis Effort for AIDS, Tanya Brown, MSW. Got to make sure you say the MSW. Um, If you like this episode, please like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. And if you have any takeaways from this episode, let me know what your favorites were. And if you want to get involved with the organization, don't hesitate to reach out at clefa.org. Or you can contact me and I'll be able to get you more information or anything that's going to be helpful. Till next time, stay positive.